First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. We are making our way to the end of the letter now. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. I have a couple weeks left after today in chapter 5. Peter begins, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. As we come to this place in this letter, I I, I was thinking in in some ways, uh, this message on this passage is one of the more difficult ones as, particularly at the end of the week, as I was as I, to, to prepare from our study in First Peter, and it's not because of some major interpretive challenge or something in this text. It's it's really because there's such a wide gap between our experience and that of the original readers uh, that Peter's writing to. So when what what life was like for Peter's first readers in in their context is so different from our experience of, as believers in this context. And so we we live in a nation with many professing Christians and many, many churches. Just look around our area and how many you passed probably on the way here today. Yet they were this tiny, tiny minority in their culture. We live in a country that's been heavily influenced by Judeo-Christian values. They lived... In a, in, in, a, in a world that was shaped by and infused with Greco-Roman values which are very, very different from what we know. We live in a nation that's been historically friendly to churches. Their churches were viewed as threats, not assets in society. And so I've thought a lot about, uh, especially yesterday and Friday, I was thinking a lot about what it would have been like for those first readers, those original readers, to, to hear these words for the very first time. I, I, again, I know having to use some imagination, but just knowing what we do know about their context. And, and again, there's this gap between their experience and ours. And that's not to say that this letter is any less relevant to us. I think that will be clear as we walk through. But our experience, again, historically, has been so very different from theirs. And yet, we can say in our own context, the storm clouds are gathering. We, we've talked about this. Our culture was once kind of cozy and friendly with the church. Now it's quickly turning against the church. 
And you see opposition to the gospel and its ethical implications. And you see hostility to a biblical worldview and, and opposition, animosity towards churches. These, these things are growing realities for us in the West. And so there have been, these, these have been continual realities for most Christians throughout the world, uh, throughout world history and, and present day included. And so that's the norm for most Christians throughout history. But, but listen. Back to our context. No matter, no matter how humble we may be, and I pray that we'll always be growing in humility as, a, as Christians and, and as church. No matter how many good works we do, and I pray that we'll do many, I pray that we'll do more. No, ma- no matter how real those things are, no Christian in no church ex- is exempt from the possibility of persecution from the world. And, and that's the reality. The, this book is a gift to us as the climate in our nation really begins to change towards Christianity. And so Peter wisely and lovingly and pastorally is preparing us to face opposition with hope that lives and never dies. That's that's what he's doing here. And so we're reaching this crescendo in this letter. And so the timpanies are, are rolling and the cymbals are growing louder and the volume's starting to swell. And so we, we get to this and he's been building this case throughout this letter for this living hope in the face of opposition as we live as elect exiles. And this is not our home. We're suffering sojourners in this world. And so he's, he's, he's building and building and building. And then he says to them in verse 12. Look at it again. Verse 12. Beloved. Now, don't, don't overlook that little word. This, this little form of address, is, it, it sets the tone for the entire exhortation here at the end of this chapter. It's like, it's like Peter has his hand on the shoulders of these believers in this church. And he's looking at them eyeball to eyeball. And he's speaking to them with his tender personal affection and tenderness and, and he's conveying this, this, this deep care for them and for their hearts and for their souls. And as a loving pastor, he, he cares deeply for these people and so he speaks with this, this tenderness and this earnestness as he writes to them and he says, Beloved, He's, he's fully aware of how difficult their situation is. He's fully aware of how troubled their hearts have become because of the opposition that they're facing. And, and yet he's full of conviction that hope is alive because of Christ. And so he says again, he says, Beloved, he knows, he knows that what they're going to need in their darkest moments of suffering is, is their best theology. And in these verses, he provides them with this soul-strengthening theology of suffering. Not in a kind of a, just an academic, rigid sort of way, but, but theology with shoe leather on it. And, and, and this, is the, this is what we need as well, brothers and sisters. So he unfolds this, and then he builds to this climax in verse 19 that we'll see in a moment. But what I want us to see as we walk through this, when, when suffering comes our way, we have these six directives in this passage to us. And so the first directive is this. When suffering comes our way, we must not be shocked. We must not be shocked. Look at again at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So you see that in the language. Surprised. Strange. Those, those words depict something that's out of the ordinary. It's out of place. It just doesn't, doesn't fit. 
Well, we, we should not think of suffering or persecution in that way. That, that it fits with our view of the world. It fits with our view of the church. It fits with our view of the Lord. It fits with our view of our lives. We shouldn't be shocked. I mean, I know a lot of students are back to school now. They're groaning and the, the sleep, you know, they can see the sleep in your eyes and you're, you, you've, you've all those late nights and sleeping in, that's all done and now it's back to normal schedule. But, but I know college students are about to get back to school, back to classes. But would any students be surprised if your teacher or professor on that first week of school says, you know what, this week, we're, this, this semester, you're going to have to take a final exam. Would you be like, what? Are you kidding me? No. Would you be shocked if he or she said, you're, you're going to have to write a paper, you're going to have quizzes, you're going to have work to do uh, that, that, that's going to be due by the end of the semester? No. Not at all. What would surprise you if you found out there wouldn't be any of those things? It would be a happy surprise, but it would still be shocking nonetheless. So it is with suffering. Even with persecution for one's faith. This is the norm for Christians and churches. We, we, there, suffering is not the exception, it is the expectation for Christians. So this is, we shouldn't, shouldn't be surprised. So Peter isn't saying, you, you need to go looking for trouble. No, that's not it. But he's just saying, don't be surprised when it comes. Why, why shouldn't it shock us? Why should this be normal for us? Well, I'm going to give you a couple reasons. The first two are going to be more from the context. The, the, the third one is going to be from, directly from the text that we're in verse 12. But the first, first one is this. We shouldn't be surprised because we remain in a fallen world. We're still in a fallen world. In God's wisdom, once we were born again, He didn't just like, you know, pluck us out of the world and take us directly into His presence to be with Him forever. No, we, we, we remain here. He's left us here, as Peter says, elect exiles, as, as sojourners. We remain in this world that's hostile to God and hostile to the Gospel. And, and, and we were the same way. We were hostile to God in the Gospel before we were delivered by Christ. And so He's left us here going throughout the world as sojourners, um, uh, pre- preaching the Gospel of Christ, making disciples of, of all nations until we die or until Christ returns. This is, this is the reality for us. This is what God has done in His wisdom. So, but remaining in this broken, fallen world means we, we will have exposure to suffering and hardship and persecution. So we don't escape those realities simply because we're God's children. It's not like He's put some protective bubble around our bodies where we are untouchable. Now our souls, Peter's made this very clear, we are are protected by the very power of God and nobody can touch that. That eternal soul that is the the real us. But but we, we will face difficulty. We'll face pain and persecution and opposition. But what I want you to see, this was not an accident on God's part. It wasn't like, ah, oh, oops, I didn't really think that through very well. A little scheduling error that maybe I made here. Maybe I, the timing was a little bit off. No, He means for His children, once we've been born again by His grace, to live on in the middle of the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. It's not accidental. So that's part of it. We just we remain in the fallen world. But it's not that just that we suffer incidentally like everybody else suffers in the world because it's a broken world system and so everybody's suffering and we just... We don't, we, no, it's more than that. We are actually marked people. We are marked people because of our identification with Christ. So second reason suffering shouldn't shock us is because of our 
because we are identified with Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus said some words that were very hard for his disciples to hear uh, at the very end as he's about to, to be betrayed and he's about to be arrested and he's about to be crucified. He said some things to his disciples gathered together. Not the kind of words we think of as good parting words. It's not the kind of words you want to say to your you know, college students that are going off for the first time or something like that. No, he tells his disciples, the world hated me, it will hate you also. They persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. In John 15, we see this. And, and earlier in Matthew 10, 22, he said, Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And so if you are in Christ, and if you live for Christ, and if you stand for Christ, you are a marked man, woman, or child. We are a marked church because of our identification with Jesus. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition in our classrooms and in our universities and in our workplaces and with our extended family and in our culture and even from the government. We shouldn't be surprised because we are identified with Christ. That's, again, that's been, case has been made in the context. Now, third reason comes directly from our text. And why should suffering not surprise us? It's because we need much refinement. We need much refinement. Look again at the text, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. So one of the things that we're going to see here is God, God isn't just preparing us to face some kind of out of control, chaotic, random, uh, senseless suffering and opposition in the world. You just need to be ready for the chaos that's out there. Yes, the world hates us. Yes, the devil has us in his crosshairs. Those are true. But God is at work even in the suffering that we face. He is, there's design to it. It's not senseless. It's not meaningless. It's not outside of his sovereign control. God is actually using difficulty and suffering and even persecution to continue his work of grace in us. And so if, if, what, if what God is working for is only our temporal, present day, right here, right now, comfort and ease, then His plan is a massive failure. Because I know what's going on in lives. I know a lot of what's going on in lives. It's got to be that God is working on something else, something more. So, so he's up to something. And, and so Peter uses this language of fiery trial, testing you. It's the image of, of purifying gold and silver in that ancient world. And so the, the smelter would just melt those, those precious metals down and, and so that so he could remove the impurities off the top and skim that dross off. And so this is what God does. He, he graciously uses suffering in our lives to refine us. This should make us think back earlier in 1 Peter, early in our study, in chapter 1, verse 6, and following there. Peter says, right at the beginning, after he makes this case that we've been born again to a living hope, and we have this inheritance that's imperishable, and it's kept in heaven for us, and we're being kept by the power of God. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, again, it's this God's good design. He uses suffering to refine us and to test us. 
Suffering is not a sign of God's absence or His unfaithfulness or of His inattentiveness to us. Not at all. It's actually a sign of His operation of grace in us. It's a sign of His relentless, transforming love. And so... This is why we shouldn't be surprised. God is testing us through our hardships. Not to, not to hurt us, not to break us, but to strengthen us and to purify us, to refine us. He's testing us for our good, and therefore we should not be surprised when we have to suffer. Maybe one reason we, we, we act so shocked when we suffer is because we flatter ourselves into thinking that we're actually pretty good people. We're reasonably good Christians. We're a reasonably good church. Surely there's not too much refining work left to be done in my life or in our church. Just a few little rough edges, but we don't need much. Oh. But our understanding of the, of the depths of our sin is, is typically so shallow. And therefore, conversely, our understanding of the, of the enormity of God's active, transforming grace is so shallow. Like a kid, I remember as a kid playing with a globe in my uh, grandparents' house. And it was the kind that had you know, topography, so you know, raised up for mountains and stuff like that. And so, you, you know, but just picture a kid playing with that globe, spinning it around, rubbing his fingers across the Himalayas and thinking, oh, those neat little bumps. That was the most fun part of the globe to play with was the, was the mountain ranges and stuff like that. He said, oh, those little, little mountains there. Kid, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you think it's just little bumps, little, little mountains. That would be kind of neat to see. You know, you drop, drop that kid, drop the eight-year-old version of me on Mount Everest and just let me be overwhelmed by those jaw-dropping lethal heights. This is how we are when we think of our sin and grace. We're like a little kid, and we think, yeah, i got a, got a little sin, a little, I say some things I shouldn't, I lose my temper, I slam a door. And we think that's the depths of our sin. If we could, just for a moment, just God could pull back the curtain and expose to us the, the true depths of, of our sinfulness. And then, conversely, we would see the incredible enormity of His grace that keeps us and guards us and changes us and is working in us. Oh. So this suffering should not surprise us because it is one of God's means of refining us and we need so much refinement. So we shouldn't be surprised. If we greet difficulty and, and suffering and persecution, whether it's little mundane obstacles and hurdles and you know hurts and pains that we face all the time, or if it's the huge life-altering moments of suffering, but if we, if we greet that as something that's weird or out of, out of the ordinary or strange or out of place, then we're not thinking in a biblical way about who we are, about who God is, and about the world we live in. And so Peter says, don't, don't be surprised. Now that's, that's, that's big enough if we just stop there. But he goes on to say something that's really just unthinkable. He says, don't, don't, just, don't be surprised. Be glad. Be glad. So this is the second, second directive. When suffering comes our way, we must determine to rejoice. We must determine to rejoice. Enduring trials, not being surprised by them, that's one thing. Rejoicing in them, that is something else entirely. 
But he says, verse 13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now please don't misunderstand. Rejoicing in suffering doesn't mean we find suffering enjoyable. That's not what he's saying. The pain of mockery and rejection and ostracism and violence, that, that's, it's, it's not, uh, that, that, that's real pain. And, and that pain itself isn't something we're to be happy about. That's not his point. Peter isn't calling us to, to some kind of stoicism where we're totally indifferent to pain or pleasure. We're just, just kind of flatlined. That's not it. We don't rejoice in the fiery trial itself, but we rejoice in what it means. Peter's saying, God's doing something in your suffering. And something that's, and that something is, is worth rejoicing about. This is what he says. But don't be surprised at this fiery trial. God's using it to test you. But rejoice. Why should we determine to rejoice when we suffer? There's a few reasons right from the text. First, he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, or some of your translations, to the degree that you participate in Christ's sufferings. That word share is the, one of the words many of you know, one of the Greek words, koinonia, fellowship. As we share life together. So when he says, he says here, we share in Christ's sufferings and therefore we should rejoice. Now he's not saying that we, when he says we share Christ's suffering, he's not saying that we somehow share in or participate in the sufferings of Christ in the sense that we, 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 we share in the atonement that Jesus made or something like that. Like Jesus contributed 80% or even 99.9999999% and we share in, in making our contribution to that other, you know, tiniest little fraction to make atonement for sin. No! No, that's not it. That can't be it. Jesus paid it all. It's done. He finished it, everything. So we share, what he's saying when we share, we share by following in the steps. We sh- as we suffer for Christ, we're linked to Him. We're, we're identified with Him. It's because of our union with Jesus that, that we suffer, and that is something to rejoice about. I mean, seeing suffering in that way, it helps explain some of those really strange passages that we read in the New Testament describing the early church. And, and we can say there's examples throughout church history. But you remember in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the, the apostles are arrested and they're roughed up and they're threatened uh, not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And, and, it, and the text says that they went on their way rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Rejoicing that they are identified with Jesus. They, they share in Christ's sufferings. So the suffering Christian, we, we not only rejoice though in the present as we share Christ's sufferings as we're identified with Him, he, next thing we see is, is we anticipate this fullness of joy when Christ comes back. So how, how else, why do we rejoice when we suffer? Secondly, because we can anticipate greater joy when Christ returns. He goes on, that you may, re, may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Suffering with joy now, glory with joy later. What a, what a prospect. And so that, that, that anticipation of future joy and gladness, it, it fills us with soul-sustaining joy even now. 
And so there will be a day when we see and experience the shocking, stunning, pervasive glory of Jesus Christ. We're going we're gonna to see it. And, and, and when, when we try to look back on the moments of suffering and on those times that were darkest periods of our lives, we, we look back on that. We can't even remember the pain because we're so overwhelmed with the glory of Jesus Christ. And gladness in Him. And so the weight of that future glory will overwhelm all the pain and rejection and tears and sorrows and heartaches we ever experience. And so this, there's this day coming. But it's not simply saying, you know, it's tough now, but there's a day coming. No, He's, he's saying that future anticipation of, of joy and glory, it's intended to make its way back into our present. And it energizes our hearts even now as we look for that day. And so, so there's this, there's this prospect. And then verse 14. If you are so insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. <laughs> what? Now, insulted for the name of Christ, this was really the everyday reality for Peter's first readers. This was, this was their life. They were being insulted, reviled, slandered, maligned all the time by neighbors, family members, the community. This was, this was how they lived. And Peter says, if that's happening to you for the sake of the gospel, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. How is being insulted possibly connected to blessing? Well, look what he says. He tells us exactly why. The little word, because. You want to know why you're blessed? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Amen? <laughs> I know, we haven't explained that yet, but why should we rejoice when we suffer? Because we can know this deeper experience of God's Spirit. As we suffer for the name of Christ, we experience the person and the power of the Holy Spirit in this discernibly profound way. The same Spirit that rested on Jesus and empowered Jesus as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11. That same Spirit rests upon us and empowers us when we suffer as Christians. We can, we can rejoice when we suffer because we are blessed big time. That we get to taste something of the power of the age to come in the presence and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That when we are insulted for the name of Christ, we can rejoice because the Spirit of glory and of God, He rests upon us. What does that show them? What does that tell us? It says many things, but one of the things that's very clear is God has not abandoned us in our suffering. Peter here is a very pastoral, loving way. He's assuring us. God has not abandoned you in your suffering. In fact, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you in your pain, in your persecution. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the only explanation for your endurance through suffering with joy. There's so many examples that we could, we could give what this looks like, but I had read, uh, was reminded again this week of Polycarp, who was one of our early church fathers. He was a bishop, a pastor in Smyrna. And, and so he, he lived and, and, and he was arrested at 86 years of age for preaching the gospel and during this kind of flurry of persecution that broke out in that, in that region. 
And so he was brought into this arena with his bloodthirsty mob, chanting for his death, and, and he was commanded to offer incense and worship to Caesar. He was, to, he was told to take an oath to Caesar and to, and to curse Christ or he would be killed. But if he did those things, he could walk out alive. And he responded with these words, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And while he was tied to the stake, his body being consumed by those flames, he offered a prayer. He prayed to God and asked that God would receive him as an acceptable sacrifice. I mean, what possible explanation is there for what went down right there? The only, there's only one. The spirit of glory and of God was resting upon that man. Though insulted and even executed, he was blessed. And there are versions of that scene that have played out countless times throughout church history. And they're happening even today. And the same Holy Spirit is is resting upon and is present with and is working powerfully in to strengthen believers today who are being persecuted and even martyred for the cause of Christ. And that same Spirit is with us whenever we suffer for the Gospel's sake. So when suffering comes our way, we, we must determine to rejoice. We shouldn't be surprised, but we should rejoice. Now, you and I both know how even in the minor difficulties and inconveniences of life, how, how we can do things and say things and think things that we would not want anybody else to see or know about. I mean, we stub a toe walking out the door and we, you know, question the existence of God. And, and, and let alone face some kind of long-term agonizing pain and suffering or, or to face the possibility and threat of martyrdom or something like that. But listen, when you can stand in the middle of a moment of suffering and your heart is rejoicing, that is the grace of God at work in your life. So he said, don't be surprised, but rejoice. Third directive, these will come quickly now. Third directive, when suffering comes our way, we must keep it pure. We've talked about this, Peter's made much of this already in this letter, but Peter makes an important distinction once again between suffering for the sake of the gospel and suffering for our sin. So he says, verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So we're not to bring suffering upon ourselves because of our sin and, and think that that's somehow suffering for the Lord. Now, we're not gonna, we've, again, we've talked about this at length already in this letter, but just look at that list. Is, is there anything that seems a little bit odd about it? I mean, he begins forbidding murder, and he ends forbidding meddling. D- does meddling seem a little bit out of place in this list? Like in terms of severity of sin? It's okay, you can be honest. Uh, listen, we know all these... All these that are listed, and this is true with all, 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 all of these are sins of the heart before they're ever sins of the hand. So when he, when he says murder, we, we, we know that the taproot of murder is anger and hatred in our hearts. Jesus made this clear in the Sermon on the Mount. We're all guilty of that. But I'm guessing that there are probably no murders, murderers in the congregation today. Uh, no confessed murderers anyway. Um, at, at least in terms of the physical act. But I'm guessing there are a few meddlers among us. What is meddling? 
It's interfering with someone else's life inappropriately. It's, it's interfering in someone's life without, without their invitation. This must have been a, 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 a temptation, a particular temptation for Peter's original readers, and it's certainly a temptation for us today. We're, we're tempted to insert ourselves in the lives and in the business of others in inappropriate ways and for ungodly reasons. There are appropriate ways and reasons to, to insert ourselves, but that's, this is talking about a sinful meddling. And this can certainly happen among us in the church and, and between Christians, but it seems that what Peter is, has in mind is, is something else, is meddling in the lives of unbelievers, because it's in the context of, of don't suffer as a, as, as a meddler, don't receive opposition from unbelievers because you're a meddler. And so it, it, that seems to be one commentator, he describes what meddling may have involved in this context, and it's not perfectly clear, but he says these are some possibilities. Censuring the behavior of outsiders on the basis of claims of a higher morality. Interfering with family relationships. Fomenting domestic discontent and discord. Or tactless attempts at conversion. I was thinking about that last one, that last one and again, I, I don't think most of us in terms of evangelism, most of us struggle much more with cowardice than we do with meddling. Um, and self included but but I have seen I, I think I, I understand what he's saying is, is a possibility here there there are times when what passes for evangelism is really meddling it's zeal without wisdom zeal without the graces of the Holy Spirit and so at times unbelievers aren't offended because of the gospel they're offended because Christians are really annoying and 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 we can insert ourselves in inappropriate ways uh, one example and I, I don't mean to press this or uh, it's a good thing. We need to be liberal in sharing the gospel wherever we go, so I don't want to throw a wet blanket on that. But I, I have seen, observed, uh, Christians who like with a waitress at a restaurant who will stop that waitress from working and, and demand her attention to have to, to ask these awkward, very personal questions in a, in a public dining room that, that uh, you know, he's penetrating questions and waiting for her to give some extended response. And I think that may be more meddling than evangelism. I'm not sure how effective that is. I, it may feel good to be like I'm being bold for Jesus here, but it's probably, probably not the best way to go about uh, presenting the glories of the gospel to a waitress. There would be other ways to do that. And so, so just there, 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 there are ways in which we do this. Sharing convictions can at times be meddling. So Christians can make a mess of family gatherings again, not just because of their Christians' gospel, because they make it their goal to make sure that everybody there knows their views on everything. And and so that's a, a possibility. There's an appropriate way to talk about the gospel, obviously, and there's an appropriate way to talk about convictions and 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 perspectives on things in in the world. But there's also a meddling way. And Peter says, don't don't suffer as a meddler. Don't don't do that. If you're if you're insulted or ignored for being a meddler, if you suffer because you're an evil doer, you're not blessed. You you shouldn't rejoice. You should repent. You should confess that sin to the Lord. And so he says, one of the things, one of the directives, keep your suffering pure. Don't suffer as a sinner. Suffer for the sake of Christ. And then, he, and this is exactly what he says. The next thing, when suffering comes our way, we must not give way to shame. 
We must not give way to shame. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, not as a murderer, not as a thief, not as an evildoer or a meddler, but as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, when we heard the word Christian, I think we probably hear it in a different way than the early church did. Um, in our context, Christian is kind of a universally accepted, honorable title for those that believe in Jesus Christ and who follow him. I don't believe that's how people heard it in Peter's day. Christian was first used as a very derogatory term for for disciples, followers of Christ. And so they're, 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 they're the Christ ones, the little Christ, the ones who always talk about Christ, maybe a modern comparison, be something like Jesus Freaks or something like that. And, and uh, DC Talk kind of made that popular, but uh, and, and okay. But so keep that in mind. Again, as you read verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, think in derogatory, don't, don't let him be ashamed. It's easy to be ashamed when others are calling you names. Derogatory names. But when someone identifies with Jesus, whatever their intention is in doing so, even if it's in mockery, we should never be ashamed, Peter says. Don't be ashamed. I think this is probably informed by Peter's own experience of being ashamed. When he denied the Lord on the night of Jesus' arrest, he, Peter knows from experience what it feels like to be ashamed of his Savior. And so on that night of Jesus' arrest, Peter's intimidated by, uh, by the, the, the questions of the people and he repeatedly denies knowing Christ. And so he knows what it's like to feel ashamed of Jesus, of being intimidated, intimidated by the threat of persecution if he publicly identifies with Jesus. And he doesn't want us to experience a similar kind of shame. And instead he says, let him glorify God in that name. Rather than minimize your identification with Jesus, you maximize the display of God's glory and make much of Him. Don't be ashamed. Don't, don't give way to shame in your suffering. Glorify God. Fifth directive. Two more. When suffering comes our way, we must keep it in perspective. We must keep it in perspective. Verse 17, for it, is, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, what's, what's going on here? First, remember what Peter is doing here. He's writing to comfort and help and to strengthen his readers. He's writing to those he loves. He calls them beloved. He's writing to those who are of the household of God. He makes that clear in this context. So he isn't threatening them. He's not trying to, trying to unsettle them. He's, he's not wondering about the genuineness of their faith any more than he's wondering about the genuineness of his own faith because he speaks of himself, that it begins with us. And so this judgment that begins with the household of God, it's not punishment for their sin. It's not condemnation. Peter's already made it crystal clear in 1 Peter 3.18 that Christ also suffered once for sins. Righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And so, this judgment relates back to that fiery trial in this context of verse 12. It's, it's for purification and refining and, and not condemnation. It's purifying judgment, not punitive judgment. And he's arguing here from the lesser to the greater. So if God uses severe trials to, to refine the righteous, if that's difficult, and it is, Think of how much worse the day of judgment will be for the ungodly. That's what he's doing. He's comparing. 
The suffering we experience is the refining work of God in our lives, and it's a precursor to the judgment of God upon the world. And then he tells them again in verse 18, quoting scripture, quoting the Old Testament, if, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And he's, he's just restating it. So don't misunderstand. Scarcely saved doesn't mean he's just saved by the skin of their teeth or something like that. Or just, yeah, you know, just barely make it in. No. Or that some don't make it at all. That's not his point. He's not calling into the question the salvation of his readers. That issue has been settled. Back in chapter 1, right at the beginning, our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. We're kept by the very power of God. Salvation secure. Scarcely something means with, with difficulty. With difficulty. Before that future and final salvation, difficulty, suffering, persecution is going to be a reality for God's elect. For us. Again, he's comparing what the readers are presently enduring with what those who do not obey the gospel will experience in the future. And he reminds us that we are much better off than we appear. And so this is why I say, what he's saying is, keep, keep your suffering in perspective. You are suffering, and judgment has begun with the house of God, and there's this refining fire that's, 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 that's changing you and purifying you. But take heart, brothers and sisters. It is, it is just a precursor for this, this outbreak of judgment that will come upon the world. So put it in perspective. It's, again, this is written to strengthen, comfort, help, convince these first readers that those opposing them should not be envied or feared. They should be, as he's already said in this letter, prayed for and evangelized. Well, brothers and sisters, what should this do for us? It should provoke fresh gratefulness to God for His grace in our lives today. For those who pass through the refiner's fire in this life of suffering and hardship, we are those who have been saved from hell's fire in the life to come. And, and, and all we experience of fire in this life is the refining fire of a good heavenly Father who means it for our good. And the reason this is all we experience is because on a hill called Calvary, the Son of God Himself suffered unjustly, bearing in His body the wrath that we deserve. And He, he endured the fire of hell that we deserve, crying out at one point, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And so he, he, he endured that God-forsakenness. He endured that fire of hell, of God's wrath in concentrated form so that you and I who trust in Him will only know the refining fire of, in this life. That purification. And in the life to come, we'll only know joy and gladness and inexpressible, glory-filled rejoicing. So keep it in perspective. Last directive. Number six, when suffering comes our way, we must rest as we work. Rest as we work. I know some of us, we think of rest and work as polar opposites. So we're either, we're resting and, and not working, or we're working and we're not resting. But Peter puts these together, and he says in verse 19, this is the big climactic conclusion here. Therefore, in light of this rich theology of suffering that, that you've got to have in your life if you're going to, to face opposition and do so rejoicing, in, in light of all of this, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. 
We've made this point already, but don't think of suffering as outside of God's sovereign will. It's a, it let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So He directs their attention, our attention, to the faithfulness of God and exhorts us to entrust ourselves and our future to Him. As we do, our, our souls are steadied and strengthened to, to, to in, in, the, in the midst of the fiery trial. So the one who made the world, the one who holds it all together, the faithful Creator is the one who holds us by His grace. The one who owns all things has the power to supply all of your needs no matter what you walk through in this world. It's not difficult for us to entrust our souls to God when everything's happy and pleasant and easy and comfortable and, and you know, everything, all the circumstances are, are just great. It's, but unjust suffering, it produces, introduces temptations and doubts and uncertainties about God's character and His intent towards us. And so Peter, caring for them, caring for us, he, he exhorts us to trust God in the midst of painful and perplexing trials in life. He's saying, trust our souls to God. He's a faithful creator. How is this trust in God displayed? He says, while doing good. That's no small challenge to continue doing good while, while suffering, particularly if, the, if the, kind of the cause of your suffering is because of the good deeds that you've done. Which in many of, for these, this was the, exactly the case. But Peter says to them, don't, don't be deterred by persecution. Don't let persecution distract you from doing good. Uh, one commentator, Robert Mount, said, while believers will certainly endure the hostility of an unbelieving world, there is no place for a martyrdom mentality. Suffer, but get on with the job of living an active life of good deeds. Christians should be known for what they do, not for what they suffer. Fixation on the difficulties of life robs the believer of the opportunity to display his concern for the welfare of others. Listen, we, we, know, we know the anxiety, we know the nervousness that just kind of sweeps over us in times of suffering. Again, it can be rather mundane, it can be completely life-altering, it can be persecution and threats of, of death. Will I make it through? Will I have what it takes? How will this turn out? What's, what's going to happen next? So we have all these swirling thoughts and concerns and anxieties. Peter says, in this moment, it's very important not to forget what your hope is fixed to. It's not in figuring out everything. And it's not in finding rest in your understanding of why things are happening in your life. Your hope is one thing, in one thing. It's your Creator, Savior. He holds all things in His hand. He rules all things by His power. And He can be trusted to supply everything you need. So entrust your souls to Him. And then He says, because, because you can rest in God that way, get busy. <laughs> Do good deeds. Don't, don't be frozen in paralytic anxiety, but your soul is at rest. Your, your soul is safe with God. Therefore, I'm now mobilized to be on mission for Him in the midst of a hostile world. Peter doesn't give them hope in this context. He's not giving them hope. The hope is not, your suffering's about to, you're about to decrease. It's going to subside. It's going to go away. 
in this world, not that's not it. He provides them with something that's much more powerful and potent. He gives them a theology of suffering, which is really he directs them to God. And, and, and that's going to serve them and strengthen them and sustain their souls in the midst of the suffering that they're enduring. And so it will for us. There's only one thing that can transform us into being people like we've been talking about in these directives and people who actually do this, who aren't surprised, who do rejoice, who, who, don't, uh, who keep our suffering pure, who, who aren't ashamed, who, who keep things in perspective and, 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 and who uh, continue to be active in good works. How, how can we possibly do that? That's humanly impossible. It's so unnatural to us. There's only one thing that can transform us, and it's the, it's the transforming grace of Jesus Christ that was displayed and won for us at the cross. That's it. What this passage should do this morning is drive you to the cross in hope. Drive you to Him. It's in humble hope that admits, I'm not here yet. I'm not there. But I, but I, I know someday I will be. And, 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 and it drives us to ask again for the forgiveness that the cross has purchased. To, to, for the deliverance that's a gift of the cross. For the power that's displayed at the cross. So it drives us to Christ. It should. And this is what we will do as we'll worship at the table. And this is the appropriate response for us. We're going to sing in a moment. And then we're going to come and eat and drink. And, and I pray that the, this remembrance will, will again, will, as we pointed to Jesus, we can... can better in the midst of our suffering and trust our souls to our Savior Creator and get busy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we're going to sing, our souls would be at rest in You. Lord, there are no doubt troubled hearts here this morning. And it may not be because of the the fiery trial of persecution. It may be some other form of suffering. But You intend to use all kinds of suffering for our good. And and so, but I, but we can we can not have that perspective. We can be shocked. We can be can be so saddened and not know anything of the joy that you intend for us. And so I pray, I pray, even as we sing and certainly as we come to the table, Father, you would you would impress upon our hearts deeper in, in a deeper way through the aid of your Holy Spirit that you can be trusted, trusted not just with our bodies but with our souls. So may we rest in you, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.